Welcome to Continuum, a podcast dedicated to your health. We'll introduce you to individuals throughout the healthcare world, from patients to providers, with a focus on inspiration and education. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Albert Lawrence. Dr. Lawrence is a pulmonologist and the National LTAC Medical Advisor for Vibra Healthcare. Dr. Lawrence joins us to discuss respiratory failure and how patients are weaned from a ventilator. He explains what a pulmonologist does and the role of a long-term acute care hospital in ventilator weaning. Dr. Lawrence also provides fascinating insight into how respiratory care has progressed from the old iron lungs to modern ventilators, including a state-of-the-art piece of technology called volumetric capnography. Welcome, everybody. Today's a a really awesome episode. We're going to be talking about ventilator weaning, and we're going to talk about it from a, a number of perspectives. And to help us do that, I'm really, really excited to introduce Dr. Albert Lawrence, MD. Dr. Lawrence, welcome. And first, can you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and kind of elaborate on your background and how you came to be a pulmonary doc? Sure. Uh, uh, so I'm a pulmonologist, a lung specialist. Uh, and prior to becoming a lung specialist, uh, I became a, an internist which you have to do before becoming a pulmonary specialist. Um, and so uh, I had an interest in, in lung diseases and um, in particular patients who were in respiratory failure and the rehabilitation of patients in respiratory failure. Uh, part of that means helping patients get off uh, mechanical ventilators, which uh, uh, sometimes referred to as life support, so that they can get back to breathing on their own and, and uh re-entering the, the opportunity to have a more normal kind of life. Okay, cool. So uh, here's a question I have, and I, I always think about this. This is more for, like, physicians in general. When you guys are in med school, how do you – obviously, it's different for everybody, but some people go to medical school, and they decide they want to, like in your case, focus on uh, respiratory care, lung, you know, focus on the lungs. Some go into neurology. Some go into they want to focus on feet, and they go into podiatry. Or what is that process? Uh, like I said, I mean, I sure. know it's going to be different for everybody, yeah. but it, to me, it's always interesting. Like, how do you decide in medical school what you want to focus on? Okay, that's a great question. So I'll tell you basically how it works. Um, so the first couple of years of med school, it's changed over the years, so it's not exactly the same, but in general. You do a lot of classwork type of things. Uh, you do basic sciences like pathology, anatomy, things of that kind. And then in your third year, you do different rota- clinical rotations. So you'll do a couple of months of internal medicine, a couple of months of general surgery. You'll do gynecology. You'll do psychiatry, uh, pediatrics. Mm-hmm. So you'll kind of start getting an idea of what it's like in the different fields. So you might start getting some ideas at that point. Uh, in your fourth year, you can do a lot of electives where you have you can choose what you want to do in some schools now they do, there's some mandatory research as well. So for me, the first choice, the first big decision was, do I want to be in a surgical specialty or more of a medical specialty? And for me, I preferred medical. So that already ruled out half of uh, potential fields like general surgery, urology, ENT, um, 
vascular surgery, neurosurgery, those were all surgical subspecialties. So since I was not going into surgery, those were no longer, those were off the table. Right. So, um, so what that left was internal medicine and all the potential subspecialties of internal medicine, of which there are many, uh, pediatrics. Uh, GYN is a surgical specialty, so that uh, was not on the table. Um, you know, and then some particular specialties like dermatology, radiology, ophthalmology. So I was kind of kind of leaning towards internal medicine just because that's kind of what I liked the most. And so I went in to that. You have to do a three-year residency of internal medicine. And when you're done with that, you can just you could stop at that point and become a general internist, uh, like a hospitalist, for example, or that's kind of another track which is newer, and just work in a hospital or an internist and just work in an office, which can be kind of a one form of primary care. Okay. Um, then there are a bunch of subspecialties of internal medicine that you can do after you complete your three-year residency, like cardiology, pulmonary, which is what I'm doing, GI, um, endocrinology, um, uh, hematology, oncology. There's a whole bunch. Sure, yeah. Neurology, neurology is kind of its own thing. You don't have to do internal medicine first. So when I was doing my internal medicine residency and I was exposed to all the different types of subspecialties, I just kind of gravitated towards pulmonary medicine. That was kind of the thing that interested me the most. And then I went on to do a two-year fellowship, which is specialization in pulmonary medicine. And after that, I then was able to go out into practice as a pulmonologist. Oh, wow. Okay. So that is one big question that I have always wanted to ask a, a physician. So thank you very much. That was a great answer, You're too. Um, so, You're so that tees up my next question, which is, and we've touched on it a little bit. Obviously, you, you alluded to it earlier that pulmonologist deals with, uh, for all intents and purposes, lungs. Um, but can you right. take us on a little bit of a deeper dive onto exactly or into what exactly a, like a pulmonologist does day to day? Sure. So um, th there's a lot of different uh, lung diseases that a pulmonologist uh, would be involved with. There are some obstructive bronchospastic, bronchospastic diseases like asthma, COPD, which is a kind of a, an umbrella term for emphysema, chronic bronchitis, which is mostly related to smoking, uh, lung cancers. There are fibrotic or scarring diseases of the lung. Uh, there are... Um, uh, pulmonary vasculature or vessel diseases of the lung like that can cause things like pulmonary hypertension or high pressures within the pulmonary vascular system. Um, and then there's a lot of, uh, one of the things that pulmonologists get very involved with is ICU care and ICU management of patients. Uh, in fact, today, almost all pulmonary training programs are called pulmonary critical care training programs yeah. because pulmonologists work a lot and often run intensive care units. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but one is because a lot of times patients in an ICU are on a respirator or on another name as a mechanical ventilator sure. uh, where the machines are breathing for the patient. Um, and then things related to that, um, putting in, doing procedures, doing, uh, putting in central lines, doing bronchoscopies where we take a scope and look inside the lung, um, and we can take biopsies and things of that nature. So there's a bunch of procedures as well that, are, that a pulmonologist does, uh, tapping a, 
uh, a collection of fluid around the lung in the pleural space and taking that fluid out. Um, and today, uh, actually, there's a new specialty called interventional pulmonology where the, where the interventional pulmonologist really does a lot of invasive procedures. All right. Well, so you mentioned ventilators, and, well, we're going to be talking a bit about ventilators today. So can we just take a little bit of time and talk about what exactly uh, a ventilator is? And obviously, this is geared towards people that really just do not have uh, an idea at all. They may have be in a situation where their loved one is on one, and they're kind of in need of information. So if we, if you could walk us through a little bit of the, the, the basics of, of uh, a modern-day ventilator. And honestly, if you want to take some time uh, and, and talk us through a little bit of where ventilators kind of started, that would be really cool, too. You know, in a nutshell, a ventilator is a machine that helps a person breathe. Uh, that's kind of just the general uh, description. Uh, so over the years, there have been different kinds of ventilators. Um, in the 1950s, for example, there were a lot of epidemics of polio that affected people's ability to breathe. And at that time, the commonly used ventilator was called a negative pressure ventilator. Uh, specifically at that time, it was called an iron lung. Uh, some people may have seen pictures of people actually lying inside a giant metal cylinder. And uh, this was a negative pressure ventilator that helped patients breathe by creating negative pressure around the chest, which then allowed the chest to passively expand and, and air would come into the lungs. So that was what was common then. Starting in the 1960s, uh, positive pressure ventilators started to take over. And a positive pressure ventilator is a machine that actually pushes air, forces air with positive pressure into the lungs, and then the lungs mm. exhale passively. So it's kind of the opposite, uh, to some extent, of the negative pressure ventilator um, in terms of how the air gets into the lung. So that's, you know, that's the type of ventilator we have. And, and for a long time, the only way to interface with a, ventilators was, with a ventilator was with a tube, either what's called an endotracheal tube that would go in, from the mouth down into the airway, the trachea, uh, the another name for the windpipe, or through the nose down into the windpipe, and then the ventilator with tubing can be connected to that tube. Right. If if a patient has that tube in and is going to need that tube for longer than say a couple of weeks, um, that initial tube will be changed to a surgically placed tube called a tracheostomy tube which is placed directly in through the neck. And the reason that after about two weeks it's changed is because the initial tube that goes through the mouth and nose goes through the vocal cords. And if it stays in much longer than that, it's likely that the vocal cords will become damaged. So the benefit of the tracheostomy, one of the benefits of the tracheostomy tube is that it bypasses, it goes in lower than the vocal cords, and does not cause any damage or irritation to the cords, which would impact or uh, have an Im impact on the patient's ability to speak. So that's something that we don't want to happen. Right. In addition, the, a tracheostomy tube in the neck is kind of a, it's a more stable tube than the tube in the mouth or nose. So a person could be ventilated by being connected from the ventilator with tubing to either the endotracheal tube in their nose or mouth or to the tracheostomy tube in their neck. 
Now, more recently, starting, say, in the early 1990s, uh, we were able to start using ventilation without a tube, and that's called non-invasive ventilation, meaning there's no tube invading the body, and it can be done by using a face mask over the nose and mouth, for example, which then is connected by tubing to the ventilator. So we have that option as well. It's called non-invasive ventilation. If somebody does have to have a, uh, a tracheostomy, is that you doing the install, or who in the hospital would do that? Okay, so in the past, it was exclusively surgeons, either okay. ear, nose, throat surgeons or general surgeons. But now there's something called a percutaneous uh, placement where it's not done with an open surgical procedure but with a dilating procedure. And this can be done by surgeons, but it's also now done by interventional pulmonologists that I mentioned uh, are pulmonologists that do a lot of procedures. And uh, a, a percutaneous, meaning a percutaneous tracheostomy can be done at the bedside like in the ICU. Oh, wow. As opposed to going to the operating room. Oh, that's handy. So moving on, so we have a, a nice foundation of what a ventilator is, where it started, how it's progressed over the years. So what gets you a ventilator? What types of patients do you see on ventilators most commonly? Sure. So, I mean, the, the two big problems that patients can face is, one, not being able to get in enough oxygen into their blood through the lungs or not being able to get out enough carbon dioxide. So those are the two things that need to be accomplished, getting oxygen in from the air and getting carbon dioxide out into the air. Um, and so if a person is, you know, you don't, if you're having trouble doing that, you may not need a ventilator, but if it gets bad enough, right. um, you will need the ventilator to help move that air more effectively so more oxygen gets in and more carbon dioxide gets out. Uh, so, for example, a patient with emphysema commonly will have trouble doing both, uh, but they may be able to breathe adequately with medicines and so on or oxygen supplementation to not need a ventilator. So you see patients uh, walking around with oxygen, um, and that is for people who can't get enough oxygen into their bloodstream. It's supplemented by breathing a higher concentration of oxygen than you get with just breathing regular air. Uh, however, if the CO2 gets high enough, for example, uh, and the patient cannot blow off, get rid of that CO2 adequately, ventilators will uh, help to make that more effective. And that, for example, is one reason why a patient might end up on a ventilator if the carbon dioxide is extremely high in the blood. Can you walk us through, generally speaking, what the process is for liberating a patient uh, from a ventilator, i.e. ventilator sure. weaning? Right. So generally when a patient gets on a ventilator, one of our principal goals is to ultimately get the patient off the ventilator. We really don't want patients staying on the ventilator for long periods of time or forever if we can avoid it. Uh, obviously that can be very debilitating for the patient. It might you know, certainly limit the patient's mobility and their quality of life. Um, so there are certain diseases where we expect that we won't be able to get a patient off the ventilator, for example, certain neurologic diseases like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, oh. where the breathing, well, all the muscles, including the breathing muscles, get so weak that you can't breathe effectively. You can't move your chest wall effectively to get air in and air out. So uh, someone who has that kind of diagnosis, who's now on a ventilator, 
unfortunately, the, the, the muscle function is not going to improve. And so a patient like that may be able to get off for maybe parts of the day, but is unlikely long-term to be able to stay off of ventilator. But for everybody else uh, who doesn't have a, a diagnosis where it's not expected the patient could get better, uh, the goal is to try and liberate the patient from the ventilator to get the patient off the ventilator and back to breathing on their own. Um, so, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of different techniques uh, for, util- for, for getting patients off the ventilator. There, are diff- there have been different protocols, for example, what they call a physician-driven protocol or a respiratory therapist-driven protocol. Um, and just to kind of, in an, a slight overview, a physician-driven protocol is where the physician is involved on a day-to-day basis and writing orders. This is obviously a patient in a hospital, usually in an ICU, uh, or now more co- also in what's called a long-term acute care hospital, uh, which is where I work, um, and where the physician writes orders about changing ventilator settings, you know, decreasing uh, gradually or not so gradually the amount of work that the ventilator is doing, allowing the patient to take over more of the work of breathing. Uh, later came what's called the respiratory therapist-driven protocol, where you actually had a set of written criteria uh, that the respiratory therapist would follow so that the physician didn't need to be involved on a day-to-day, decision-by-decision basis. So it would kind of give criteria if the patient is able to do X, then change the ventilator to Y. If the patient can then meet certain other criteria in terms of how they're breathing, then the ventilator settings are changed accordingly. And so the respiratory therapist would be making those decisions based on the guidelines prescribed. So that's another form uh, that has been common, a format that's been commonly used to liberate patients from ventilators. Today, uh, certain facilities are using something called volumetric capnography. Uh-huh. Uh, so this is kind of a newer thing that in our institution we've been using for many years, but it's really still a little bit slow to catch on in other institutions. Others are using it, uh, although it's still, I would say, the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my, From my perspective, uh, as of today, is the most effective way of weaning patients from or weaning uh, liberating patients from a ventilator. Um, and the reason for that is because um, uh, basically what we're we're using technology uh, and information that the technology provides to us to make decisions on how quickly and when to liberate a patient from the ventilator. Uh, to, to give you a little bit more specific, what the technology does is it measures the amount, the volume of carbon dioxide that the patient exhales. It also measures certain flow parameters that the patient is uh, deliver is, is able to generate. And then a computer kind of takes this information and breaks it down in all different kinds of ways uh, that gives us information about how well the lungs are working, how much of the air we're giving to the patient actually gets down to the part of the lung where gases exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide as opposed to just the larger airways closer uh, to the ventilator um, as opposed to the air sacs called alveoli where most of the gas exchange takes place. So rather than making decisions based on 
how the patient looks, for example, when you change the ventilator or how fast they're breathing or whether they look like they're in distress, which, you know, has provides some information. But so, sometimes the patient may be in distress and it's not related to how well they're breathing. So we can differentiate using volumetric capnography whether or not a patient's in distress because they're having trouble with their breathing or with their heart or with the circulation of blood that brings carbon dioxide back to the lungs versus maybe a patient is just feeling anxious or frightened or is in pain and looks in distress because of one of those things. So it allows us to continue taking a patient off the ventilator more quickly because we're actually using evidence, actual real data about how well the patient's heart and lungs are working as opposed to just how does the patient look, for example. I see. So now, does volumetric capnography, is that a protocol that's pretty much sound for just about any type of patient, or or do you kind of have to be the right candidate for vol- um, volumetric capnography? Sure. It, can re- it can be used on any patient that's on mechanical ventilation. Okay. Uh, it's used in intensive care units uh, it's for adults, and it's used in pediatric intensive care units, uh, and it's used in uh, long-term acute care hospitals. Uh, where patients who are on ventilators uh, and couldn't get uh, liberated quickly tend to be transferred from the intensive care unit. You've brought up long-term acute care a couple times now. You obviously practice in a uh, long-term acute care hospital. I do want to just take a moment to uh, actually educate and inform folks who may not know what a long-term acute care hospital actually is. And furthermore, kind of how it sits in the continuum of care for, again, you know, your typical, well, in this case, uh, a vent patient. Sure. So most patients who go go to the hospital for one reason or another, even patients who go to the intensive care unit, most will ultimately be able to go home from the acute care hospital. Uh, Percentage of patients go to the ICU, what I think will be less than patients who go to general medical surgical floor, But for the most part, patients go directly home. But there are some patients uh, who are sicker and sick enough that they cannot go directly home. Um, And depending how how sick they are, they would either from the acute care hospital go to an LTAC or long-term acute care hospital or to a lower level of care, which is called a a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home. And by nursing home, I don't mean long-term nursing home, but each nursing home today uh, or most nursing homes today have a rehab unit within the nursing home. So a patient may not be well enough to go home or maybe need some uh, physical therapy to be able to walk again, but they're not medically terribly sick or unstable. And those patients generally will go to a skilled nursing facility, facility rehab unit. However, there's also a group of patients who are sicker, who still have a lot of medical uh, uh, issues that need to be dealt with, be it they're on a ventilator, for example, uh, and can't breathe for themselves. Or they may, in addition to that, be getting dialysis because they're in kidney failure or need ongoing IV antibiotics or uh, serious wound care management. post-surgical patients, for example, or patients who've had bad strokes and are medically unstable or need a lot of diabetic management. So a patient who is is sicker like that 
but is ready to leave the ICU or the acute care hospital will go to a long, what's called a long-term acute care hospital. And these are hospitals that are designed to take care of sicker patients who are coming directly from the acute care hospital or frequently coming directly from the intensive care unit. So um, a long-term acute care hospital has a medical staff uh, with a variety of medical specialists, with nurses and respiratory therapists who are specially skilled in taking care of this sicker population of patients. And at the same time, they have a very extensive rehabilitation departments, which includes physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, so that while the patient is getting ongoing medical care for serious, complex medical issues, they will also be getting exercises for strengthening, for walking, for developing increased endurance, and this is done by physical and occupational therapists. With Usually when the patient's particularly debilitated, they'll work together as a team, and as the patient gets better, physical therapists will work on lower extremities and walking, and occupational therapists will work on upper extremities and activities of daily living, like you know brushing your teeth, combing your hair, eating, things uh, of that yeah. nature. Um, Speech therapists work on a, on a couple of also very important things, and one is swallowing. Frequently, patients that have a tracheostomy tube or have been very sick are not able to safely swallow because what happens is the food, instead of going down to, to the esophagus, to the stomach, ends up going into the airway, the trachea, the windpipe, and down into the lungs, which is very dangerous because that then frequently leads to pneumonia. Mm -hmm. uh, or a specific particular type called aspiration pneumonia. So a speech therapist does evaluations of a patient's ability to swallow and determines when they can start eating. And they may be able to start eating, but not regular consistency food, right. but maybe it'll have to be pureed or chopped or ground, and the liquids may have to be thickened. In addition, they'll work with the patient on swallowing exercises. So if they can't swallow effectively, They'll do therapy to help the patient get back to being able to swallow effectively. And they also work on communication issues. So a patient, for example, with a trach tube uh, may not be able to speak. Right. And so we can start working with speaking valves, which are one-way valves that go on the tube, or trach capping, uh, or other devices uh, or techniques for a to help a patient communicate. So all those things are ongoing in the long-term yeah. acute care hospital while the physicians, nurses, and respiratory therapists are also managing their medical care and keeping the patient stable and helping the patient to get medically better. So really, it's for the correct patient. I mean, this is a really custom-tailored, comprehensive uh, level of care uh, that, that they can expect to receive. Um, Absolutely. That's, that's pretty awesome. So jumping back into sort of ventilator weaning specifically, Obviously, we've talked about where it's been, uh, where it is now. From your perspective, what are your thoughts on where ventilator weaning may be going? Uh, are there technologies uh, on the horizon that you're uh, uh, particularly interested in? Or what, what is your take on sort of where things may be going? Well, sure. I, so in terms of actual ventilator weaning, I think that you know, volumetric capnography right now is the gold standard. Uh, because we're using that technology, we're able to liberate a much higher percentage of patients from the ventilator and in a much quicker period of time, which, of course, is really the goal, to help patients get better uh, quicker. 
Um, there were other um, interesting uh, devices on the market today that's not particularly directly related to ventilator weaning, but to provide other benefits. Uh, there are devices, for example, that help um, uh, deliver inhaled medications deep into the lung uh, with a vibrating mechanism. Huh. And, uh, for example, that can be used to deliver medicines that uh, help to relieve bronchospasm or wheezing. And also we use it, uh, for example, to help break up mucus that's deep in the lungs that may be preventing air from getting into certain parts of the lung. And when that happens, the lungs distal to that area tend to collapse. So in the past, the, the gold standard treatment for that is to do a bronchoscopy where you put a tube down into the lung and you suction out the mucus to clear the airways. But now with this particular device, we're able to deliver uh, medication, which in, happens to be high, concentrated, high concentration salt water uh, mixed with a medicine to prevent bronchospasm, which then by vibrating down into where the mucus is, breaks up the mucus, helps, relieve, uh, helps remove the mucus from the airway, open up the lung distal to that area without needing to do an invasive procedure like bronchoscopy. So that's another uh, type of um, uh, technology that we use that's available out in the market today. And that kind of brings me to uh, another question I have for you. I, I've heard you say, and I really like this quote. In fact, I, I actually wrote it down, which is, um, if there's a technology out there that helps us get a patient better, faster, I think we're kind of obligated to use it. And that really struck, uh, me personally, that really struck a chord because it, one, I wholeheartedly agree, and I think most people would, but at the same time, I mean, it's something that you kind of ha still have to say. And so we kind of get into this sort of ethics kind of thing. And, and you said that in the context of volumetric capnography, uh, more specifically your advocacy for it. I wanted to get your kind of take on that. Uh, obviously, you said the quote, but in general, with just medical technology, where are we at? I, it, it just seems sort of like in America, it's kind of what you can afford in one sense of what the insurance companies are willing to pay. And I don't want to get off it because I think this gets into a whole nother like podcast series, frankly. <laughs> but I, I just while we have you, I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more on on your thoughts on that kind of thing. Well, I think I, I said that as you as you point out in relation to volumetric capnography, because those of us who are using this understand what a huge advance it is in terms of benefiting patients. So. You know, I think that it'd be great if, you know, if more facilities were using it because I think it would help patients, you know, in those facilities. And, you know, it, it, there is a certain learning curve to using the technology. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's, it's just a question, I think, of eventually probably everybody's going to be doing it, but it's been a real slow rollout to yeah. uh, a more to a broader use in the medical community. But I think it's slowly starting to take off. For example, there was a major article recently in a very important pulmonary journal from the University of Pittsburgh um, uh, discussing the, the benefits of and the advancement uh, that is provided by using volumetric capnography. It's actually a two-part article. So I think that it's... It, that's really very much a mainstream journal with uh, from an institution that's very highly respected. So I think that'll 
probably carry a lot of weight, and some people will start uh, thinking about volumetric capnography a little bit more because of that article, although, of course, there's a lot of information on the Internet as well. But I think that article will start to trigger other institutions to be looking at it. And so obviously the University of Pittsburgh is using it uh, extensively because they, they've done you know, research uh, and collected a lot of data uh, about uh, patients who have been uh, treated with while using volumetric capnography. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, it should be a nice, a nice push. So we're going to wind down a little bit now. And what advice do you have for anyone who would find themselves uh, with a loved one on a ventilator? Um, that's got to be an emotional time, but what are some key things to remember when, when faced with that kind of situation? Well, uh, you know, obviously it's, you know, if someone's on a ventilator, they're, they're generally fairly sick or something's happened that put them in a situation where they need a ventilator. So, um, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, obviously stay hopeful and, and work with, uh, you know, and, and stay in communication with the healthcare team that's providing care to your loved one. Um, I think that's very important. Make sure, you know, any questions you have, certainly ask. Um, you know, get as much information as, as you're interested in, in talking about uh, so that you have an idea of what's going on and what, what the outlook is and what, you know, what the prospects are. Uh, what the goals are, and um, and how the healthcare team uh, perceives being able to achieve those goals. What resources would you recommend for people that want to learn more about ventilator weaning? I, I, you know, and I and I also want to say here, like, I know from experience that just going out and googling things and using the internet kind of willy nil can kind of be a dangerous thing. Um, so I want to ask this it, with that in mind. Are there any specific, uh, quote-unquote, safe places to gather reliable information? Well, I, I can tell you uh, that, that's a, an excellent question. I think that, you know, there are some pulmonary societies that you know, I think you could have a lot of confidence in, in their journals, for example, two of uh, which are the American College of Chest Physicians that puts out a journal uh, on a regular basis, and they have... They publish articles, uh, some of which are related to ventilators and ventilator weaning. Um, and another is the American Thoracic Society, which has some uh, several journals that they put out, uh, which also is a very reputable organization with very reputable journals. So um, those are two uh, references that I would uh, recommend. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Lawrence. And, uh, of course, folks, we'll, we'll have links to uh, all of these places that, that Dr. Lawrence just mentioned uh, included with the uh, podcast description. So with that, Dr. Lawrence, if you have anything else to add, we'd love to hear. This has been great. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you very much for the opportunity to, to be talking about this subject. Absolutely. I, it really, really is awesome to have you join us. We're very, very grateful, and uh, I really want to thank you. And uh, Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. All right. Okay, folks. Well, that's it for this episode. And uh, like I said, all the information that Dr. Lawrence discussed uh, will be uh, in our podcast description and and you can check it out as you please. And that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much. Our guest today was Dr. Albert Lawrence. To learn more about ventilator weeding, check out the show notes on the Continuum blog at vibrahealthcare.com slash blog. 
If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Lawrence, please consider leaving us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to receive new episodes as they're released. Thank you.